lockdowns in China, slowing economic growth, and ongoing supply chain bottlenecks. China has been at the forefront of investor conversations for years, but is it still investable? We are in a perfect storm situation where we have a number of economic and regulation headwinds all going against the market at the same time. I'm Allison Nathan, and this is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Against a challenging macroeconomic backdrop, investors are reevaluating their exposure to China. To help us understand the outlook for China's economy and markets, I'm sitting down with two of my colleagues in Goldman Sachs Research, Hui Shan, our chief China economist, and Kinjer Lau, chief equity strategist in macro research. Hui, Kinjer, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be here. Thanks, Allison. China is our topic for this episode because it's facing multiple headwinds. We have COVID lockdowns, property sector worries, geopolitical tensions, just to name a few. The lockdowns, in my mind, are front and center just because they have the potential to significantly slow economic growth in the country and prolong the supply chain disruptions that remain very much in focus. So let's start there, Hui. What's your read on the lockdown situation and the risks around it right now? Yeah, certainly that's the number one question that we're getting these days, especially when the rest of the world is opening up, whereas China is kind of stuck in this situation. I tend to emphasize that this is not really by choice in the sense that if you look at elderly vaccination in China, it's still at relatively low levels, below 60% of the elderly population age 80 and above have vaccinated. So if the Hong Kong experience is of any guidance, that scares the policymakers and frankly, a lot of citizens in China about opening up. So we're stuck in this situation when Omicron is very contagious, but we still have the zero COVID policy, which in turn means a lot of restrictions and a lot of pressure on the economy. What is really going on right now, what we are seeing tracking daily information and varieties of indicators is that number of cases are still very elevated, but at the same time, the number of places being impacted is declining. Highly uncertain. We don't know if it's going to reverse or not, but we're seeing supply chains. For example, around the middle of April, we saw arrivals and departures at Shanghai ports. That was the lowest point. And after that, there is some sequential improvement. And similarly, for within city traffic congestion measures and a few other indicators. So, my takeaway is that this is the worst wave since early 2020. Number of cases is still very high. You know, we just got news over the weekend about Beijing restricting activity because of cases. But so far, it seems like we've seen at least a local peak in cases and activity showed a sequential improvement, you know, marginally. And you track this in a lockdown index. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing recall. You know, more than two years ago, at the beginning of 2020, China had the highest lockdown index, meaning that lockdown was the strangest in China versus ex-China. After that, for much of 2020 and 2021, China's lockdown index was much lower than the rest of the world. And coming into March, April, we're seeing another reversal. But China right now has a lockdown index around 40. And at the peak, that was February 2020, it was at 80. 
Whereas everywhere else is more like a 10, 20 lockdown index. And so we are in this situation. That's why a lot of people are asking, are manufacturing moving out of China? Because before China had the stability and the advantage of producing, whereas other countries are battling with COVID outbreaks. And now we're risking seeing the reversal of that. Let me switch gears for a moment to another key concern in the Chinese economy that has been a focus for a while now, but seems to have fallen from the headlines, the property sector in China. Is that less of a concern or is it just getting less attention right now because of the shift in focus towards the lockdowns? Yes, I think it's a bit like the market can only focus on one thing at a time. It's still a pretty stressed situation. In fact, the two negative shocks, housing downturn and the COVID, they interact with each other and reinforce each other. When you look at the January, February property sales that we're tracking, it was down 30% young year. Not great. But come March, April, when we had this latest outbreak, now we are tracking close to 50% down young year. So You can imagine the central bank may be lowering mortgage rate and cities may be relaxing purchase restrictions. But if you can't go out of your apartment, it doesn't help. You don't have transactions. So we're in this situation where, you know, before this latest outbreak, we saw some uh, green shoots or some hopeful signs of stabilization in property transactions. But now all of a sudden we got another leg down in the transaction, which is from a growth perspective, these are the two major to economic growth of this year that's embedded in our forecast. So when we think about these major drags in growth, historically, we are used to Chinese policymakers stepping in when they see growth threatened to this extent. Is that happening this time around? If so, how much cushion could that provide to the blow of these factors? Previously, because of the planned nature of the economy or the government has a lot of control over the economy, policies tended to be this counter-cyclical buffer that if external demand is super strong, then Chinese government can do less of a policy support and still have a stable growth. And vice versa, when the external demand is not good or other shocks happened, the government can provide support to the economy, typically via infrastructure building or property sector relaxation to keep the growth roughly within a reasonable range. What's different now? I think a few things. One is that if you think back in 2008, 2009, when the global financial crisis happened, that was an exogenous shock to China. The developmental stage is different now. Back then, you had a lot of demand for infrastructure building, a lot of demand for people moving into these modern housing stock versus old, outdated, and poor quality housing units. So you had that potential demand you can tap into to help out with your cyclical growth outlook versus now after, you know, 10, 15 years of very fast infrastructure building, a lot of apartment buildings being put in place, you don't have as much or as potent of these demand you can tap into, you can stimulate and then get a very robust growth impulse. That's number one. Number two, I think the current administration, if you think about the leadership of Xi Jinping, He's pretty into thinking about deleveraging. Even back in 2017, 2018, that downturn was related to this idea of 
cracking down shadow banking and controlling leverage. And if you think about this round, the housing sector was also because of this push for deleveraging, we had this downturn. So I think this is also different when you think back in previous leadership or previous administration in China, you had a different mindset and you just tend to be more on the deleveraging rather than providing support to the economy, lever up, and let's get the economy going mindset. And the third difference I would say is that because of a president, she is aiming for a third term. So you can imagine he might be having a even longer term view than previous his predecessors, that if you were in the office for just another five years, you might want to make sure the economy is going well, you want to stimulate. Whereas if you're going to be in the office for another 10 years, then what you worry about is not just stimulating the economy, get a good growth number this year. You also worry about the five years down the road. Are we going to have this financial imbalances and risks and future volatilities and potential downturns? So I think those are all the differences that's making this market and this investment environment more challenging than previous cycles. And is there kind of a silver lining from your perspective then that there isn't as much desire and instinct to go to leveraging again, that we think about the downturn in the property sector that was potentially very overheated? So are we seeing a correction that was you know, long and coming? I mean, can we take that away and say some of this will ultimately be good for the Chinese economy over the medium term, even if near term it's generating some downside to growth? Yeah, I think that's right. I think the direction, when we look at the numbers, the population growth, the urbanization, a lot of these tailwinds are fading. So from a demand, fundamental demand point of view, we do think the longer term demand for housing is going to decline. So you want to engineer a soft landing. So the direction should be slower pace of growth or even fewer apartments being built each year. The key question is that you want to control that speed, right? You don't want to drop. When I when I say 50% down young year, that doesn't sound like a soft landing. And that's not what you want, even if you think that the end game is fewer apartments being built. The 5% young year decline, you can run that over the next few years, or sort of deflate a potential bubble rather than just burst it. And that would have implications on local government financing, because in China, a lot of local governments rely on land sales for revenue that had implication for consumption for confidence, for upstream sectors, all the steel, cement production. So the repercussion can be quite significant given the degree of a decline we have been seeing. In past episodes of weaker growth, we've also seen Chinese policymakers letting the currency depreciate to help offset that growth weakness. What's your view on this more broadly? Yeah, interesting you mentioned that. And uh, CNY has, over the past few sessions, turned from a outperformer and a very resilient currency to a sharply weakening currency. You know, right after the Russia invasion of Ukraine, we saw other EM currencies depreciating, but CNY was pretty resilient. The past few days, CNY has depreciated from versus the dollar depreciating from 630 to almost 660. So quite a big move by Chinese standard of what is really going on. I think the central bank is a bit conflicted. On the one hand, Chinese economy is facing downward pressure at a time the Fed is hiking interest rate. 
So when you think about capital outflows, potential currency volatility, they sort of decided not to cut interest rate at this moment and not to even further exacerbate that interest rate differential movements. And also we have the commodity prices and inflationary pressure. So they decided not to cut interest rate. But at the same time, they seems to be okay to let currency weaken a bit through their daily fixing. We're seeing that they are basically telling the market that some depreciation is okay. I think that makes some sense that uh, when your economy is under pressure, you want to depreciate your currency in a low profile way. You don't want to be so high profile, cut your interest rate and potentially cause foreign investors to reduce their positions of CNY currency. At the same time, if the currency themselves are depreciating, that helps your exporters, that helps your growth on the margin. So that might be something that's happening. But you know, given the style of Chinese policy I would be very surprised to see they continue to allow the significant depreciation to happen, particularly when, you know, in history, when we saw the currency movement, once expecting one way expectation is formed, it's very hard to turn it back. So I would imagine the PBOC through their daily fixing to express some concern over the extent of depreciation that we have been seeing. Kinder, let's bring you into the conversation. The CMY is not the only asset that's been under pressure. We've seen substantial pressure across many Chinese assets, given the risks that Wei and I have been talking about. Are these risks more or less priced in at this point, if you look, for example, at the equity market, or do you think there's more downside from here? Sure, Alison. And I think clearly we are going through a rough patch for Chinese equities. The market is down about 20% so far this year. And to a certain extent, as you said earlier, Alison, I think we are in a perfect storm situation where we have a number of economic and regulation headwinds all going against the market at the same time. We just talk about the COVID outbreak, the property market downturn. But on top of that, we also have Chinese ADR delisting risk from the US and the spillover of geopolitical risk from Russia to China. Chinese ADRs are essentially Chinese companies that are set up overseas and are currently traded in the U.S. market. And one of the pretty significant concerns among investors over the past two years has been the potential delisting risks for these companies, especially after the Holding Foreign Company Accountable Act has been written into law at the end of 2020. U.S.-China tensions have certainly intensified over the past two years, and it started from the trade war between the two nations, but later on expanded into other strategic domains, including capital markets, i.e. the potential delisting of Chinese ADRs in the U.S. market. And I think all these risk factors have contributed to the quite weak performance for Chinese equities over the past two months. That being said, everything has a price. And I think equity investing is all about assessing risk and reward. And at the moment, Chinese equities are trading below 10 times forward price to earnings ratio, which is roughly speaking, one standard deviation below historical average. And from that perspective, we would argue that a good portion of these concerns and risks is already well discounted in prevailing equity valuations. And in fact, we would argue that China is still trading below our expected fair value, and there could be potential for recovery for valuation down the road as long as a global recession could be avoided and some of these risks 
do not develop into bigger systemic problems. The broader issue that you mentioned is that the Chinese government has been cracking down on certain sectors. This regulatory crackdown that we've been talking about for quite some time now, really since last year. And it's really stepped up when the government started targeting Chinese tech leaders. So if you think broadly, as the government tries to flex its might in so many ways, the overarching question that investors have been grappling with is ultimately, are Chinese assets still investable given these risks? Well, Alison, I think this is a fair question to ask. And our answer here is, yes, China is still investable, at least from a regulation perspective, for a few key reasons. First, Chinese regulators have repeatedly emphasized that the very heavy-handed regulation crackdown like the one we had for the Chinese education sector last year is unlikely to repeat. And if that's the case, we think that the worst is likely behind us in terms of the regulation shocks to the equity market. And the second reason is that we actually compiled a proprietary regulation tracker which shows that the regulatory tightening intensity level already peaked in late 2021. And since then, the intensity has moderated quite meaningfully over the past few months. And last but not least, I would also argue that we think we're naturally transitioning from an announcement phase of the regulation cycle to an implementation stage where we would like to get more clarity and transparency of the regulation measures. And I think investors should be in a better position to price these regulation impacts on earnings as well as on valuations. I think ultimately, to state the obvious, the market doesn't like uncertainty, but I think we are getting more transparency about regulations. And hence, I still think that China is still very much investable from that perspective. Wait, can you give us a little bit more detail in terms of the political transition or lack of transition, I should say, that might be happening this year and how that could inform what we are seeing from an economic policy perspective and markets perspective? Yeah, a couple of things. This is quite unusual because if you recall, President Xi's predecessor, Jiang Zemin, he was the leader for 10 years and then Hu Jintao for 10 years. And then now President Xi is about to get his third term at the 20th Party Congress in October, November timeframe. What that means for the economy, for the financial market, is a lot of implications. I'll give you a couple of examples. One is that when we think about about infrastructure building. These infrastructure building tend to be lucrative for the contractors and local officials previously have been accused of corruption related to these projects. So what we are seeing more anti-corruption investigations going into this year and we suspect the local government officials will be a bit reluctant to engage in a lot of infrastructure building, all else equal, for fear of accused of corruption and potentially sort of not really being promoted in these political transition years. Just one example of how that could impact the economy. On the financial side as well, I think these political calendar or big events, they carry significance in China. If you think about last year, all the regulations, all the announcement seems to happen after July 1st, the CCP's 100th anniversary. So we kind of feel the policies are being front-loaded this year so that ahead of the 20th Party Congress, perhaps the 
third quarter GDP would look decent. But after that, perhaps the growth may slow a bit because you already spend all the money you allocated for this year due to front loading and getting a good third quarter. So those are certain examples of how this could impact the economy and the financial market. And certainly behind the scenes, I think who's going to be, you know, the number two, number three, number four, uh, so on, on the Politburo Standing Committee, that could have some political implications. But at least on the economic and financial side, we can see pretty concrete signs of this is going to be pretty important. Kinder, what's your thought as we look to this 20th National Party Congress where Xi is expected to take on an unprecedented third term? Well, I think if we look at these political event in a standalone manner. And particularly, the equity market actually tends to perform quite well in the run-up to the National Party Congress, which happens every five years. And I think this historical pattern reflects market expectations that policy accommodation will be provided by policymakers to ensure some sort of economic stability ahead of the transition. And I would say from a top-down perspective, is one of the key underpinnings to our relatively constructive views on Chinese equities over the next 6 to 12 months. Now, more specifically, I think from a longer-term policy direction standpoint, I think it's always important for investors to align their portfolio with policy directions when it comes to investing in China. I guess it's true everywhere, but I guess it's more so for China, given how influential policy is to companies' fundamentals. And based on that logic, if President Xi is going to extend his power over the next five to 10 years, I think some of these policy directions will also be quite important when it comes to investing in Chinese equities. And here, we believe that sectors such as semiconductor, electric vehicle, green energy, industrial technology will continue to receive policy tailwinds. And I think these sectors will be in a better position to deliver sustainable returns to equity investors. One area that we didn't touch on, but I think makes sense to in light of this big political year in particular is, of course, U.S.-China trade tensions, which had been a huge focus during the Trump era, has lost a little bit of focus in the recent period, in part because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has really shifted the geopolitical focus to that area. But if you look at this big political event this year in China and the relationship between the U.S. and China going forward. Hui, what are you focused on in terms of thinking about the trade relationship, where it's headed and what it means for the economy? Yeah, I think the reality of a trade relationship is that China is such a big part of the global supply chain and a significant share of global trade market. It's very hard to completely shut China off. You know, this is just from a reality check perspective, it's hard to see a complete decoupling, at least not the foreseeable future. But the other part of the reality is that you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is just on top of what already happened that accelerated the decoupling, accelerated the security thinking and resilience of a supply chain, all these things. 
you know, starting with U.S.-China trade war, we saw companies contemplating should we diversify our supply chain. Some did, some didn't. And then you had COVID. And especially when people see the very stringent rules for the Chinese government to implement the zero COVID policy when the rest of the world is reopening, that's another consideration how the supply chain is going to rearrange itself and the trade flows between countries. And then you had the Russian-Ukraine war. So I think the broader trend of not only trade, as for control technology on the financial market, which Kinger can speak further to, and on the just views of how COVID should be dealt with, I think many dimensions, you know, the two countries are sort of moving apart from each other. That has implications if you think about Chinese emphasis on security. There could be food supply security, energy supply security, technology security, data security. A lot of the things, initiatives and policies Chinese policymakers are pursuing is in this broader context that we are in this new geopolitical environment that we need to have a bottom line thinking and making sure that we check the boxes when it comes to security. So I think it goes way beyond the trade relationship and it's a kind of a broader trend that the two biggest economy in the world are marching toward. So if we look at all the headwinds we've discussed, lockdowns, property sector, geopolitical tensions, regulatory crackdown, big political transition, what is your outlook, medium term way for the economy in terms of growth? Yeah, I think, you know, we have a view that previously you might think Chinese potential growth is five to six percent, but we think we might be settling into a slower growth. You know, because you are trying to solve the housing access problem, because you're to solve your energy security problem or your regulatory objective, when you're trying to achieve some other goals, there will be cost. And the cost to us will be slower economic growth. So we we do think over the next few years, even if all these initiatives and policy objectives are being achieved in a rather smooth fashion, perhaps Chinese economic growth will only average between 4 and 5% growth rather than the previous thought, 5 to 6%. And Kendra, any last words then for investors as they eye China here? Well, I think given what we've just discussed, all the risks and concerns, I think we're definitely in a situation where these factors have inevitably complicated the near-term market outlook for some investors. But I would say the last key message for me would be that if we take a step back, I think the strategic investment case for Chinese equities remains intact, i.e. it's still the second largest and most liquid equity markets in the world. The capital market is still developing and Chinese equities are still under-owned by foreign investors. We talk about less than 5% of foreign ownership in the onshore equity market. And I still think that is the place for investors to look for structural growth opportunities on a global basis. Now, of course, Kui said that the longer-term potential growth may come down a little bit, but 4 to 5% is still not a bad number in a global context. So my last message here for investors is to really focus on policy beneficiaries and stay invested. Kinder Hui, so glad to have you both on. Thank you. Good talking to you. Thanks so much for joining us this Monday, April 25th, 2022, for another episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. If you enjoyed this show, we hope you follow on your platform of choice and tune in next week for another episode.
Make sure to like, share, and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.